A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Deck Chairs on the Titanic edition. I am Shane Harris of Daily Beast. So many tales of government organization, less plans gone awry this week on the podcast, uh, for which I'm joined by my good friends Ben Wittes and Tamara Kaufman Wittes. Hello, guys. Hey. And our special, special guest who has not been on the podcast in the longest time, in donkey's ears, as, as you might say, Jonathan Rausch. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Shane. Good to be back. I'm so glad you're here. I hope that the, the Titanic edition I, is not like an ignominious I am always up for shuffling deck chairs. Really? I, I promise that this podcast will not sink just because you're here. Deck chairs are us. Donald deck Trump chairs. is shuffling deck chairs on Donald the Titanic right now. Donald Trump is shuffling quite a few deck chairs right now. Uh, we should probably, since there was a primary uh, con- no, a caucus contest, Indeed. People actually, for the first time, went into polling places, voting booths, classrooms, what have you, and put their mark down for real Donald Trump. Real voters or, with real opinions affecting real results. Yeah, and we finally got some real results. So I have to ask, was anybody surprised by the outcome of the Iowa caucus? I was thinking Trump. I, I was surprised that? that Gilmore was still in the race. I was surprised with it, too. I actually saw that on there, and I thought, wait, who? Yeah, I, didn't he drop out? Didn't he drop out like a year ago? <laughs> I was surprised that like more people didn't think better of vote, voting for Bernie Sanders right at the end. You thought that there would be like a last minute, like a sort of drop this. off, as people said, like really, really. <laughs> <laughs> but no, he was the closest. I think that must have been the closest uh, caucus result. Yeah, certainly in recent times, is it? Did it break a record for the closest ever? Point three percent. Yeah. Well, it, yes. I, I don't know if Santorum, it broke a record, but Santorum Huckabee was like, um, I think, what was it? Oh, no, uh, Santorum Romney was like three hundred votes. Right. Right. Ah, okay. So but that's now, pretty close. now uh, three hundred votes is approximately what Santorum got, got in this total. Time, right. so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and so now we've seen. O'Malley suspend his campaign, Rand Paul suspend his campaign, right. Santorum suspend his but none of the... Huckabee. Huckabee too. Oh, uh, right. Okay. So um, the question is, are we going to see any real consolidation, or will we have to wait until after next week's primary in New Hampshire? I think we already have. Of course, we'll have to wait. But the structure on the Republican side has, has changed, because before Iowa, it looked like the establishment vote was fragmented between four or five different people. And now it's only fragmented between three or four different people. Well, now it's, now it's flipped because now the conservative, the protest vote is split between Cruz and Trump. So they're going to be splitting their votes. But it looks like Rubio for the establishment. No one thinks oh. Jeff's going anywhere. So now, okay. now we get a more traditional race where the um, you get concentrated fire from the establishment. But on the left, this is a choice, not an echo. How do you mean? Hillary versus Bernie Sanders? It's mm-hmm. a stark difference in approach to politics. It's a stark difference in worldview. 
In accent? In, certainly in accent. I mean... In closeness to Larry David in appearance and, in, and voice. In pronunciation of the word Muslim. <laughs> I, I'm actually, I'm actually, I'm going I'm to offer a critique that I've been having at home. I'm actually going to, I'm going to actually hold my industry, the media, <clears throat> to task in this one. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of there may be a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters out there. Probably on this podcast, more Hillary supporters, I would guess. Uh, that's just a thought. Uh, but this idea that he is going to be the nominee is is a fantasy. It is just it's crazy. And and I think that yes, there were you know the, the closeness of the caucus and the fact that he's ahead in New Hampshire. But I feel like we're sort of creating and heightening attention here. Well, when the fact is, sure. is you just run the number and run the math, and she's got delegates locked up, and he's not going to do well in the South. I feel like we are heightening the tension here and making it seem like he's a more plausible threat than he is in order to have something to write about. That's so, I, you know, I think there's something to that because, of course, it's always more interesting to write about a real horse race. Um, but I also think that there's been a quality to this entire campaign, even more on the Republican side, of treating the media, treating the campaign like a reality television show rather than like a political exercise that chooses the leader of our country. And so I, I think that, that that dynamic reinforces this, oh, momentum, oh, you know, stumble, oh, surge. It's, it's all about the drama. It's not about the reality. And yet I did read the upshot column in yesterday's New York Times, which made exactly your argument, Shane, that, you know, we really just shouldn't be talking about this because Bernie's toast in the long run. I think if you're winning 50% of the vote in the first state or 49.6 or whatever he got, and you're winning... Uh, by 30-point margin in the second state, which is what the current polls show, he's uh, actually earned a place in the discussion. Yeah, in the discussion, I just think there's 48 more states. You're looking at me skeptically, John. If we were sitting in a morning meeting in a national journal in the old days, how would we be dissecting this? Here's what I'm skeptical about. Expecting anything different when you're not really paying journalists and they're all teenagers chasing <laughs> clicks. Oh. Yeah, but how do you really <laughs> feel about that? is thrown down. All right. So next our, week we'll do the all the fate of journalism podcast with our John Our Senator Sanders and, and Mrs. Clinton much different on rational security issues? Or do we oh, even no. know? They are, they are Sanders yeah, even they are profoundly different. Profoundly. Um, and well, actually, although Bernie Sanders prefers to avoid talking about national security issues, he's been promising for months to give a major speech on foreign policy, which he still hasn't done. He was supposed to do it at Georgetown, and it turned into a speech about the meaning of democratic socialism. Oh, really? Yeah. Which is, of course, a national security issue. <laughs> so is that sort the difference? Of. He talks about no, it, no, she no. talks about it, and he doesn't? No, so there's actually important national security-oriented differences, both on the Republican side and on the Democratic side. So the major difference... Um, as Bernie Sanders would want you to understand it, is that he voted against the Iraq War and Hillary Clinton voted for it. To me, on core authority issues, however, the more significant factor is that Bernie Sanders voted against the Patriot Act. And that means that um, he was one of a very, very small number of members of Congress to do that. Uh, and that means, as, as a member of the House, he voted against it. And that means that he opposes, essentially, the modern uh, architecture of electronic surveillance. Now, he's never, at least not recently, explained that vote, whether he stands by it and, uh, and, and why, what he thinks is wrong with the modern architecture. But I think that's a significant real-time decision 
uh, 14 years ago that I think actually does mark a significant difference between the two of them. And not one I think he's been asked about much so far, so an interesting question to follow up on. On the Republican side, among the first three, the, the, the big three, Trump is, is, of course, incoherent on most issues. He just says he'll be very tough and you know, Cruz sometimes talks about carpet bombing, but there really is a big difference between Cruz and Rubio, which is that they voted opposite ways on the USA Freedom Act, the uh, the more recent uh, uh, surveillance reform bill. Cruz voted uh, um, against uh, for it, and Rubio voted against it. And so there's a, um, you know, there are some pretty significant policy differences in, in both caucuses that, you know, on rational security-related matters. And presumably, if Hillary's the nominee, they will criticize her for the Libya intervention. They'll, you know, they'll, they'll hold up any number of decisions that she made or was involved in and, and try to hang on her as well. Sure, and I think that that's, you know, but that's obviously something that her campaign has anticipated from the moment that it, it came into being. So... I'll be surprised if any of those attacks are surprises uh, to Hillary Clinton. It's interesting, too, on the Republican side. I mean, both Trump and Cruz are pretty much neophytes on foreign policy generally. They do like bombing things. They, Yeah, they like sounding tough and bombing things, but they actually don't know very much about any of the issues, and they haven't thought about it yeah, very much. Yeah, but Trump is huge. But Trump is huge, and uh, and Putin likes him. But and Ruby, a winner. Right, and Rubio actually is somewhat schooled on these topics. Yeah. He's traveled quite a bit as a senator abroad. He's traveled with Senator McCain, and he's you know been out to the Middle East. He's talked about uh, military issues, whether it's deployment or force structure or budgets. So he's kind of dug his, his fingers into the issues a bit. And if it comes down to three of them in a foreign policy debate, the other two are going to have to go to school. Okay, we shall see. Uh, I think the, the New Hampshire primary will be before we record for next week. So, Jonathan, you can come back too, and then we can be our, <laughs> or you're our resident political expert. Uh, okay, let's get on with the, uh, the, the wordplay edition of the podcast. This week, the administration is revamping its efforts to staunch ISIS recruitment. The NSA makes the line between cyber attacks and defense even blurrier. And Ben has a, pro- has a plan to solve the going dark problem. The man with the plan. The man with the plan. Uh, Tomorrow, why don't you kick us off? Sure. So my wordplay for this week is an article that um, appeared Monday in foreignpolicy.com by John Hudson, who's sort of their diplomatic correspondent equivalent. We like John Hudson. Yeah. Uh, And he did some good work uh, here. It's called Growth of Islamic State Forces State Department Overhaul. And he got information uh, about a briefing that the Department of State gave to uh, folks on Capitol Hill about an upcoming reorganization of the State Department's counterterrorism efforts. And why is this news? It's news because, as a lot of um, uh, media were discussing in December, the administration overall is feeling a bit defensive about the progress in its campaign against ISIS and its broader efforts to counter violent extremism. And so they, the, the White House kind of launched a, a media campaign on this. Uh, and, uh, and also, uh, the State Department saw the departure in November of General John Allen, who had headed up the, uh, the coalition to counter ISIS. And so this reorganization within the State Department is coming in the wake of those two things. 
Um, which means, I think, if you look at it practically, it has both PR components and substantive components. In other words, I'm not sure it's just shuffling deck chairs, but I think, I, I'm also not sure that this reorganization is going to make much practical difference in the effectiveness of what the State Department is doing. So, what is the reorg? So, it's shuffling tables on right. the deck of the Titanic. <laughs> Lounge chairs, not really just long deck chairs. chairs yes. Yeah. Um, so, first of all, uh, the Bureau of Counterterrorism at State, which has only been a bureau for a few years. Before that, it was an office of a coordinator for counterterrorism. And, and look how much more effective our counterterrorism efforts <laughs> now are that it's a bureau. now that it's been upgraded. Um, it's going to be renamed. It's going to become the Bureau of Counterterrorism and Countering Violent Extremism. Ooh, that'll show them. Um, and it's, it's going to become the kind of central uh, clearinghouse within the State Department for all of the uh, programming, all of the money that the State Department is spending trying to curb recruiting to Islamic State and other extremist groups. There's a huge, uh, well, I don't know, huge. There's an office within the State Department that is all about countering online recruitment, which has been notoriously disorganized and ineffective. Um, that, that office is also being renamed. Uh, it's going to be called the Global Engagement Center, and it's going to get a bunch more money, uh, $7 million, apparently, in the president's uh, upcoming budget request. So more money, uh, more kind of bureaucratic heft. And, you know, it seems to me that what this, what this looks like is not only a PR effort, look how serious we are, but also the State Department kind of settling in for the long haul on uh, civilian-side counterterrorism efforts. What do um, they do? Yeah. That's I mean, when you say countering recruitment, are they like on Twitter and when, you know, the ISIS guys tweet, you know, come to the caliphate and, and help us build it, the State Department tweets, no, don't? <laughs> like, like, what's okay, the... so, if only they were that proactive. So some of the things that this, uh, this uh, online center, which was called the Center for Strategic Counterterrorism Communication, some of the things it did really caught a lot of flack. It... It would troll cyber jihadis on Twitter. It would. It, pr it was producing English language counter propaganda videos to say like, no, ISIS isn't cool, boys and girls. Um, I kind of support that. This is well, your brain on ISIS. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it's it was very war on drugs or, or anti gang style. And of course, we know what a good job government does with that kind of stuff. The, the teens really listen to the federal government when it says things like, don't, yeah, everything, everything your, your parents, parents told you about, about smoking was right. right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's, it, it's easy to poke fun at, but it simply hasn't um, had much impact. Indeed, there was, there was reporting this I wonder week why. that the number of foreign fighters jo joining ISIS hasn't slowed down at all. So, I think the idea now is that it's going to focus on pushing more of this money out to Arabic language efforts that are being led by people in the region, including this new counter-messaging center in the United Arab Emirates. Um, there's one in Malaysia. There's one in Nigeria. So going into the regions where we see extremist recruitment happening, Southeast Asia, Africa, the Middle East, and doing things in local languages and relevant to, to local contexts. That makes sense. It would make even more sense if they were recruiting 20-year-olds to do it. 
-hmm. You know, I, I don't know how many 20-year-olds are working in that State Department office, um, but they might have an easier time getting a, a security clearance than some of us older folks. There ought to be lots of 20-year-olds in the region in Arabic putting stuff up online and getting rewarded if it's any good or gets traffic. Yeah. So here's my question to you guys. Do you think that bureaucratic structures matter at all in the counterterrorism effort? Is this all about being nimble in the face of a nimble enemy? And, and this is just shuffling deck chairs? I think bureaucracies matter insofar as they put the people in power who allow the really innovative stuff like what Jonathan's talking about to happen. So, I mean, it seems to me that epic trolling of jihadis online is a perfectly natural way to sort of counter this propaganda. I mean, you know, we should also be aware of the limitations, right? I mean, you know, you're competing with somebody on Twitter, you're just sort of trying to you know, what, out-tweet them, I guess, you know, and don't necessarily expect that you're going to be able to prove that that's what the intervention was to stop somebody from joining ISIS. I mean, you have to kind of set the, you know, the expectations maybe at a reasonable level. But, I, you know, bureaucracies can do all of that, too. I mean, to me, they're about who's in charge of them and who what they're allowing to actually flourish. But, like, this, what being described, sounds desperate. I, I, mean, I, I don't know that it's deck chairs on the Titanic so much as, um, you know, I don't even know what the metaphor is. The, the mission seems to me altogether wrong. The idea that the U.S. State Department is going to get down and dirty and argue in social media and videos with ISIS about whether people should or shouldn't pick, you know, drop their lives and, you know, travel into war zones to blow things up. I, I just think that's a you know, Foggy Bottom is ill-positioned to have that conversation with Mr. al-Baghdadi, and there's a lot of grounds in which we can fight with them, but that's really not one that we're going to be good at or effective, uh, and I think we should leave it to individuals and coalitions of individuals who speak the same uh, emotional language as these disaffected uh, young people. Um, but I just can't imagine we're going to put together the right team at the State Department to say, ah, you know, if we tweet this, then ISIS's funding on and personnel will dry up. Okay, so I, I, I hear the skepticism. I think I have a prior problem, which is not about the social media stuff per se, because to be fair, that's only one component of the State Department countering violent extremism effort. But the real issue is that we don't, we in, in terms of the collective knowledge of, uh, of Western governments or even scholars of terrorism, we don't have a good handle on drivers for individuals to go join ISIS. Is it jobs? Is it, you know, social uh, anomie? <laughs> you know, what? how do we account for this? We actually don't know. We don't have a single uh, developed profile of young individuals who go join ISIS. It seems very different coming from different places, France versus Tunisia versus the United States. And so the idea that the State Department can sort of go along with nighttime basketball programs or job creation programs or whatever it may be, with the idea that this is going to counter extremist recruitment. We have no idea what works to counter extremist recruitment. And until we do the social science, uh, the programming is just, you know, throwing spaghetti at the wall. Uh, go ahead, Jonathan. Well, throwing spaghetti at the wall is not a bad idea. 
particularly now for spaghetti on the wall, wall productions. productions. <laughs> exactly. Um, we know some things about bureaucracies. We know that they're good at certain types of problems, which are one-size-all top-down problems. We know Voice of America was very effective against a centralized propaganda bureaucracy run by an equivalent foreign power, um, and that bureaucracies maximize bureaucrats. They'll hire more people. What we also know is that it is very hard, if not impossible, to fight a network with a bureaucracy. ISIS is a network, and they're doing network-style propaganda. And so to the extent we succeed, I think it's with a networked effort, which means it's got to be decentralized. It's got to be risk-taking, which bureaucracies hate to do. It means you're going to get blowback when some member of Congress says, did you see this crazy thing that somebody put up? But that's what they'll have to be able to do. And the question is, can a bureaucracy do that kind of campaign? Wow, that is a great op-ed. Are you going to write that op-ed? Ah, you can have it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just write it by Jonathan Rausch. Um, just as a last point, because <clears throat> I think it was, goes back, to, by the way, to parents. Uh, Peter Bergen uh, is a friend and a fellow at New America. Uh, has a book out right now, The United States of Jihad, in which he talks about the fact that, as you just said tomorrow, that there is no profile, essentially, for these guys. But raised a very interesting idea, which was get the parents involved. So when the FBI finds Americans who are about to travel overseas and join a recruitment group, tell their parents if they're if they're underage and alert them. Because there were there he profiles three people whose families have said they've come forward and said, had the FBI just come and told us about this, we would have basically, you know, pulled our kids aside and tried to slap some sense into them. Well, but we also have the case in Virginia of parents who knew that their son was being radicalized, tried so hard working in the community with their local imam, and ultimately the parents called the FBI out of desperation. Yeah. And that that's kind of the horrifying other side of that coin. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, so I'll go next with my wordplay. Uh, the Post's Alan Nakashima had a very interesting story this week. Um, the NSA, reshuffling more deck chairs, is going through a major overhaul. Major overhauls of intelligence agencies are all the rage. I love it when they're major. Too. Aren't they great? Yeah. Major Have you ever heard overhaul. of a minor overhaul? Or a minor underhaul. <laughs> That's what they do Let's But the key thing here is that the, uh, uh, the NSA is going to be merging the, the parts of the agency that are responsible for defending computer networks from hackers and from intrusions and the part that is responsible for going out and trying to break into those networks. And the logic behind that being that the skills and the people, in some cases literally the people who can do those jobs, are the same or they have a lot of a lot in common. Uh, the flip side of this, of course, being that if you're putting all of these things under one roof, does it start to blur the distinction between defense and offense? And there actually are some real inherent conflicts of interest and tension between those two things. One is devoted to trying to find holes in computer networks and alert people to them and patch them, and the other is trying to find holes and not tell people about them and exploit them and get in and take advantage of those. Um, so interestingly, I thought that it, it, it's notable for that reason, but also that uh, the president's uh, blue ribbon panel that he put together after the Snowden leaks, uh, which included people like Cass Sunstein and Dick Clark, Specifically recommended the against opposite. this, right? So no, do not. It was more than that. And more than that. More than that. It was. They uh, they yeah. they recommended removing uh, the um, defense directorate from NSA entirely and putting it in its own uh, entity. Uh, so they wanted to emphasize or reinforce the existing separation, not merely not merge them, but pull them 
pull them, pull it outside the agency altogether. Right. And so this 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 does exactly the opposite. It doubles down, if you will. Um, Peter Swire, who was one of the five uh, people on the panel, I uh, was sort of with Dick Clark, one of the main guys behind this recommendation. And you told me yesterday, you know, our concern was that this defensive mission wouldn't get enough priority if you blended it with the offensive capability. And Dick Clark essentially said, this is a terrible idea. <laughs> and I said, wow. did they consult you about it? You know, saying, so I said, no, they did not. So, I mean, this is really, it, what's, it's, it's fascinating in that here you have, you know, the NSA undertaking what, even absent the Snowden revelations and the big debate about what its role should be and its sort of cyber and surveillance capabilities and how they should be restrained, even absent that, this would be significant. But this is running absolutely counter to what the president's own advisors said he should do, and presumably the president is okay with what the NSA uh, is preparing to do. Uh, no less than Edward Snowden weighed in on this history in a tweet saying, you know, Oh, I'm so glad. Aren't you I'm glad? So, aren't I you really, glad? I wanted to know what he thought of this. But he does capture something that I think is, I think is fair, which is that when you put these missions together, you know, it becomes very hard to say that you are an agency somehow devoted to defense and you look purely like an agency devoted just to spying and to offense. And we think of the NSA as being a spying agency, but it does have this important defensive kind of mission. Um, and so it seems to me like that, if that is your point of view, that they've been on this path to evolution, to that it seems like it's now official and it's complete. Is so it a good idea? problem is which? That it's becoming just more purely a spy agency and that the defensive part will get smothered by the offensive part and that it will have no longer have an interest or a compelling reason to you know, make the Internet a safer place. For but everybody. maybe the opposite is is the reality. Maybe maybe it's that as we think more and more about cyber defense, uh, the defense people in integrated uh, operations will be constantly the one, you know, saying, hey, wait a minute, we have more exposure if, or to this vulnerability than we have to gain from exploiting it. That's and may, right. maybe having them in the same room hmm. Causes a you know a degree of of synthesis of what what the possible benefits of an exploitation uh, versus a patch are in real time. Could I, I ask know, I a really dumb question? Yeah. Sorry to cut in, Tamara, but um, the only dumb question, Jonathan, is why the is one this you don't even ask. a question? I mean, can you imagine if someone said, "Let's merge the defensive and offensive functions of the U.S. Army." <laughs> And well, someone else said, well, no, let's have a debate about whether we'll wind up with too much offensive capability. It's, why would you separate these things? The, yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, both because it, what you're talking about is security and net security requires offense and defense. And, and because of the narrow reasons that Ben just articulated. But I think the difference here is that the cyberspace is much less developed in terms of both the landscape and the norms than the battlefield, than the traditional battlefield. And so offense and defense for a conventional military, we understand, and there are norms around that, and there are ways of, of weighing um, that, have been, that have been developed, uh, a new offensive capability and the implications that might have if others say that it's okay to use it against us. But, it's not but, in, <laughs> but in cyber, I think that that stuff is still developing. And so you can get, you know, uh, a narcissistic uh, former mid-level government contractor like Edward Snowden 
to make this kind of normative case that it should be the role of the NSA to defend the freedom of the internet, which is crazy. That's not the function of the NSA. Well, it, and the it, idea that the NSA should be weighing... Um, the NSA has a, a an intelligence mission and it has a, a defensive mission for the United States. It's not about the freedom of cyberspace. Well, right, except that unlike the army, where, you know, if we have an artillery piece, nobody else has that particular artillery piece. So there isn't really a defensive uh, component to that the offensive capability that that artillery piece gives you. When you discover a vulnerability, which is what a lot of people at NSA spend time doing, that vulnerability is both an offensive weapon that you can exploit. It's also a vulnerability for every computer in the United States that has the same configuration as the vulnerability that you've discovered. And so you have to ask the question, uh, is the aggregate security of the United States better off by your exploiting or reserve, reserving the right to exploit by keeping quiet about this vulnerability? Or is it better served by your announcing publicly, hey, there's this vulnerability, go patch it? And why would bureaucratically splitting those decisions result in better decision making? Um, it might not. So it might not. It, this has been a long debate within the agency and within cyber, the cybersecurity world. And generally speaking, offense and defense, what, what are the Signals Intelligence Division and the Information Assurance Division of, of NSA? Uh, a, are separate, and B, work closely together. But the fear, <clears throat> at least among you know, the experts who are on this panel, was that if you put them together, that offense would always trump. That because the NSA is you know, also an intelligence-gathering agency that is always going to be looking for ways into systems, that the offensive side would win out over the defensive side. Now, that also may be because Peter Swire and Dick Clark were sort of predisposed to think that, I think, that they're probably pretty well informed also about how things actually work at the agency. And, you know, some of what Snowden revealed shows us that there probably is a lot of weight given to offense. It's kind of like the case for a defense bar and a prosecutorial bar being separate. Yeah, I think that, that's, that's, that's a good analogy, right. And, so, and we'll see, look, there are a lot of, you know, efficiencies and things that are going to maximize by merging these organizations. And it, Ben may be right that it actually does end up that by putting these people in a room, they have the chance to fight even more. Um, but it's also, you know, it's, it's, it's significant when an agency of this size with these capabilities undertakes, you know, to basically put all these people in one room. You know, those superpowers could be used <laughs> you know, for very great good things and for very bad things. Great responsibility. Right, right. So here's my real question. If you serve on a presidential blue ribbon commission and then Do you the get an actual has, blue ribbon? Right, and if the government rejects your recommendations and does the opposite, do they let you keep? <laughs> Ooh, I like that. Well, they should certainly still, you know, compensate you. And uh, yeah, you should get to keep the blue ribbon. I think so. Just they should. They probably. Reason. They probably come and like to like put a little punch in it or something like that. <laughs> like like they deface the blue ribbon. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> uh, all right, Ben. Your wordplay is a plan that is going to. You're going to save us all. I'm going to turn the lights problem. back on. You're going to turn it back on. So get ready, world. So this week. Um, uh, has seen a lot of action on the encryption front. The uh, Berkman Center, a Berkman Center working group that I'm a part of, though I didn't participate in this report, uh, released a uh, paper called 
Don't Panic, Making Progress on the Going Dark Debate, which is uh, basically an argument that we're not really going dark. Um, and the argument is effectively that, you know, though certain channels uh, like voice communications and email uh, contents are to some degree drying up for investigators, you know, there's a lot of new channels that are opening, like, you know, the Internet of Things. So, you know, yeah, they're like, they you can, can spy. Data mine your thermostat. You can spy on people's refrigerators, right? <laughs> um, and this is a very interesting argument that things are a lot less dark than you would think um, by, uh, you know, listening to the FBI's uh, comments. But I, uh, this week, uh, had a different thought, which I wrote up. For lawfare, and I want to draw everybody's attention to because I think it's uh, brilliant, and that everybody should immediately write their congressman and explain to them that this is the solution to the going dark. That problem. the wittest proposal. The wittest proposal. Exactly. Was that enough of a wind up for everyone? <laughs> yeah. way? Are we ready for the pitch? <laughs> prime, prime. My theory, which is <laughs> mine. Exactly. Yes, Ben. <laughs> so, over the last couple of weeks, I've been studying this. Uh, provision called uh, Communications Decency Act, Section 3, 230. And Section 230 is the most important law of the Internet that you've never heard of. And what it does, I, I, I think I talked about it a little bit when we talked about the Twitter suit, is it gives Internet platforms of all kinds immunity from, from civil lawsuits. As long as they provide merely neutral tools they are not liable for anything that their users do on their sites. And so I was thinking this is an incredible windfall that Congress has given to these Internet companies. I mean, no newspaper has this. If you take out a libelous ad in the Washington Post, you know, the Washington Post can be sued for libel for that ad, right? But thewashingtonpost.com cannot be sued for libel for the online version of that app. Or for a comment. Or for, or for an internet comment, although, you know, Jonathan and I may have something to say about that. But um, So I thought, given this windfall, isn't it within Congress's reasonable prerogative to say, hey, if you want us to protect you from all sorts of civil actions and liability arising from the conduct of your users. You only get that immunity if you, the company, preserve our ability to investigate the behavior of those same third-party users. So instead of having what the FBI has you know, proposed, like a mandate that these companies uh, preserve the ability to uh, wiretap. Instead of doing that, simply make the CDA 230 immunity contingent on the ability to wiretap. So if a company wants to say, actually, we're confident that we have no exposure to lawsuits, uh, and we think it's really, really important to provide maximum privacy protection to the users, they would be absolutely free to do that they would simply be giving up a very strong legal argument in their protection. And my prediction is if Congress were to implement something like this, A, most companies would provide some sort of 
uh, extraordinary access to law enforcement. And some companies would uh, insist on preserving as a matter of principle uh, real, um, uh, you know, real end-to-end encryption. And so you would get a, a, a significant um, but not total uh, improvement from a law enforcement point of view, but also for people who really wanted the, um, you know, the end-to-end encryption, it would be available and be there. It's brilliant. It internalizes to the companies the costs of the social cost of the decisions they're making. But one question, right now, can Apple be sued by the Justice Department or someone else if a bunch of jihadis use it as an encrypted platform to plan an attack? Well, so uh, it probably cannot, um, though I think less because of CDA 230 than just because unless you imagine a very particular type of facts, it's hard to imagine Apple having done anything wrong in that situation. On the other hand, lots of people use Apple products every day in fashions that but for CDA 230, Apple might have exposure for. I don't get it. You mean not terrorists, but, you know, child pornographers and yeah. stuff like that. I mean, there's lots of things that go on on all these systems that if you said you're not blanket immune uh, from suit for these activities um, by dint of CDA 230, they would have to think about how to police stuff. So you're saying the law that you would pass would need to create a new form of liability in order to give selective exemption from it. It doesn't need to create new liability. It merely needs to not erase the possibility of liability. It doesn't create a cause of action. It doesn't say Apple will be liable if the following things happen. It merely says they can't nuke any suit on any theory, which is what they can do now. And would you, would, how would the company affirmatively demonstrate to the government that, yes, we've created this ability to access the communications should you ever need them? So I think, I, I, so And could I, they do that secretly? So I haven't, I haven't really thought through that completely, but I think it would work something like this. If you tried to sue, say, Twitter, uh, to go back to our example from a couple weeks ago for, you know, helping jihadists blow things up. Twitter would say, no, we're immune from, from, from suit under CDA 230 um, because we're compliant and we're completely with appropriate legal process, wiretappable. And the government would then have an opportunity to come in and say, uh, yes, no, or no, yes or no, you're, yes or you are, or no, you're not. Oh, and then if, if they certify that they are and they otherwise meet the criterion, they would be immune. And the government could presumably develop some set of criteria that the companies would, even if it weren't entirely public, it would be available for the companies proactively to meet these right. standards. So that's my, um, I, 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 you know, I floated it the other day. It's gotten some very interesting reaction, um, most of which I can't talk about. Um, but um, I, I, Keeping I th- it in the dark, eh? Well, oh, going, going dark. Going dark. Yeah, um, but it's... Uh, the Wittis proposal goes dark. Just a... a attempt to be a little bit out of the box in something that has been very binary. Goodness for these creative policy entrepreneurs at think tanks. Thank goodness, yeah. This is, yeah this, this, what yeah, would we do without them? Who says that they're not there doing anything, coming up with real solutions for real problems? Yeah. People say that, you know. There are people out there who say that. There are. Sure. It's terrible. 
Uh, all right, let's move on to object lessons uh, tomorrow. Do you want to go first with your object? Well, sure. So, you know, we <clears throat> podcasters, we, we podcasters, we happy few, we are a, a band of brothers. Yeah, so um, to speak. <laughs> so to speak. And sisters, of course, um, and, and uh, non-binary siblings. Um, and, uh, and I had a really special opportunity while I was in Israel last week to visit with some of our uh, podcasting siblings in Tel Aviv at TLB1 Radio. Uh, listeners of, uh, of uh, this podcast uh, at TLB1 Radio, that's the promised podcast, uh, have probably heard mention there of rational security uh, because the host of the promised podcast, my dear friend Noah Efron, is a regular listener of rational security. Um, so he's given us a shout out on the show a couple of times and so I thought, hey, I'm in Tel Aviv. It's Thursday morning. I know they're taping the Promise podcast. Maybe I can go sit in and listen. And Noah was kind enough to agree. I got to sit nice. in the studio. And man, they have like a real studio with foam on the walls and big awesome mics and an engineer who wears headphones and edits things while you're there. What am I, chopped liver? <laughs> yeah, but what do you say? We don't have a real then. studio? He gets paid. <laughs> So it was really, really cool to be there and see how the pros do it. So here is... Can we have their studio? <laughs> yes. Can we, maybe we could do like a remote taping. We can go visit TLV1 and tape yeah. Rational Security in Tel Aviv. So here's Noah Efron, uh, Don Futterman, and Allison Kaplan-Summer from the Promise Podcast. Nice. And Rational Security listeners, if you are interested in a weekly podcast um, in English about Israeli affairs from a leftist perspective, funny, profane... Erudite, uh, I definitely commend to you the Promise Podcast. Very nice, very nice. Uh, and thank you uh, to the podcast, too, for your shout-outs to us. Um, all right, I'm going to go next with my object. So as we're looking forward to a future filled with drones, police drones, army drones, Amazon drones. <clears throat> we're gonna Taco delivering drones. Taco delivering That's drones. That's what I'm waiting for. We, you know... Everyone in this country, other countries, society is going to have to grapple with what do you do about these renegade drones, the errant drones, the, the drones that are speeding, the drones that are perhaps not obeying traffic laws. Um, the Dutch have come up with a very innovative proposal for taking out drones that you don't want in your airspace. A BB gun? No, an eagle <laughs> trained it's pretty to awesome. capture a drone in midair. It's a drone killing eagle. Yeah. We have a little oh, wow, that is awesome. GIF of the video here. Check this eagle out. We're going to put this on the website. This eagle is taking the shit <laughs> out of this mid -air. drone in midair. It snatches like, wow. it out of midair. It mid just comes on it like it's like a little mouse or a small rodent that it's just going to take and just eat and just nails it and just takes it right down. That's um, terrifying. Leave it to the Dutch. I don't know that they're particularly known for like, you know, <clears throat> animal husbandry or, you know, Falconry. Falconry. <laughs> but I mean, geez, what a great idea. And it just looks great, too. And, and then and they sure eat the drone. I hope the eagle gets to eat the drone. It seems fun for the eagle. <laughs> I mean, do you think it's not a challenge for the eagle? Because the drone like... is not nearly as agile as like a rabbit running across a field. Right. And it's but just how so... does it do it without getting its talons caught in the rotors? Have you ever seen these talons? Though? Yeah, they're, they're pretty oh tough. Oh, my God. It probably just breaks them and breaks the propeller wide open. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, but I, I want one of these eagles, first of all. And I would feel safer under this eagle's protection from errant drones, including ones that are like trying to like, you know, deliver things to my house that I didn't order, or spy on me, or drop poison gas or something. Yeah. So, 
It's kind of like when your doorbell you, rings and you just shoot first. Yeah, right. I'm going to have an eagle. I'm going to claw your face off. <laughs> my, my object lesson also has an eagle in it. Does it? Really? It does. Is, is your object lesson have a theme from the previous three weeks? It does. <laughs> But this one, I think I've outdone myself this week in Vladimir Putin memorabilia. Uh, Our sponsor this week is (laughs) Amazon.com, the only place where you can buy uh, this remarkable portrait, oil painting portrait of Vladimir Putin. It is uh, uh, by an artist named Anatoly Silov. It is entitled Vladimir Putin's Spring. Oh my word! And um, is it, it really, part of a series it really has to be seen to be believed. Oh. It's Vladimir Putin surrounded by animals. Uh, is the lion laying down with the lamb there? Uh, more or less, yeah. But wow. you gotta to fully appreciate it. You have to hear the about this artwork, <laughs> um, which reads as possible: Portrait Vladimir Putin's Spring. An allegorical, deeply historical, sorry, deeply philosophical, and most unique artwork, symbolizing the enduring friendship and openness of Russia to the rest of the countries of the world, embodied by Russian President Vladimir Putin, depicted with democratic clothes, (laughs) (laughs) emphasizing his proximity to the people. Countries on this artwork depicted as various animals and birds. For example, the United States as a fair-haired eagle. (laughs) Germany as a panther. (laughs) United Kingdom as the form of a pair of vultures. China as the form of a tiger. The Baltic countries as the form of rodents, etc. This picture is unrivaled gift to influential political business, and social leaders. It only costs $109,000, but you'll be pleased to know that shipping is free. (laughs) Shipping $14.99. It also does say $109,000 and free shipping or Make an offer. <laughs> so, so if you want to try ten bucks, only one dollar, Bob. Yeah, I have only two questions about this wonderful object. First, will Amazon deliver it to me by drone? And second, if so, can I sick my eagle on it? Yes. I think the eagle will lie down uh, with the vultures in, in, and the rodents. Exactly. <laughs> Wow, wow. That is really impressive. And with that, I think we're going to end our series on Vladimir Putin. Because I don't think I can top that one. Really, probably not. Certainly not in price. I'm just going to say, for the record, I think our State Department can do better than that. (laughs) (laughs) And they can really get on it. That's what they should get on right now. The oil painting. Exactly. Just just buy it and get it off the market. John Kerry and the P5 Plus One. Oh, yeah, they could be our musical guests this they week. They could. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to old shows in our archive at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. You can tweet at us at RATL Security. And remember, whenever you download the podcast, download the podcast from your favorite app. Please make sure to leave a rating and a review. It really helps us out. 
Uh, the podcast was edited this week by Jen Howell, as always. Our music was performed by, I don't know, I don't know if I like this. I think this is a good band name, though. I think it should be Vladimir Putin and the Democratic Pants. <laughs> oh, I love the Democratic it. clothes. I like Democratic pants. Yeah, the Democratic yeah, pants. The Democratic pants. It sounds a little, yeah. I don't know. The it's Democratic got a pants. I don't know what it is. Yeah. I think it could work. Vladimir and the Putins. Oh, and then the Putins. That's true. Um, no, maybe next week. This week, our music was performed as always by the lovely Sophia Yan, who was big into democracy mm-hmm. and, and democratic clothes. Yes, and oil painting. Yeah. Uh, on behalf of my good friends Ben Wittes and Mark Hoffman Wittes, and our special guest, my good friend Jonathan Rausch, thanks for being here. And thank you all for listening. I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 